Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Joshua David Holo for a conversation about Jewish commerce in Byzantium. Dr. Holo is Dean and Associate Professor in the Jack H. Skirbel Campus at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion based in the U.S. He has written many publications over his career, including the monograph Byzantine Jewry in the Mediterranean Economy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So to start the conversation, Joshua, demographics. So in the Byzantine Empire, and dates can come into your answer as necessary, um, what percentage of the population would have been inhabited by Jewish people? Uh, demographics are very difficult in the time period we're talking about, which is um, the uh, the Middle Ages. Uh, my general period tends to pick up roughly around the time of the birth of Islam, which is specifically dated to 622 CE, but um, is, is really an era um, of shifting uh, demographics in the Mediterranean uh, up until uh, the 13th century. And the... Uh, the demographics are difficult for interesting and complicated reasons. Number one, uh, defining what is Byzantine in that period is difficult because the boundaries shifted a lot. So um, how, how does one understand what it means to be a portion of something that itself is, is mm-hmm. difficult to nail down? Um, number two, the, the sheer simple fact of demographics is difficult to do just because of the distance of time and the lack of um, of any specific uh, record keeping that we can rely on um, or some kind of you know definitive overarching archaeological evidence. So it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. We do think that the Jews were um, you know less than one percent of the population of of really, I mean, except for major cities like Cairo, for example, where maybe the Jews were more than that. Uh, we're we're talking about a very very small minority. Okay, you've studied this particular uh, topic for for numerous uh, years. So, if we center in on the Byzantine um, region, what what characteristics would have existed uh, in terms of how Jewish people conducted commerce? versus uh, someone that wasn't Jewish? What were some of the differences that you observed? There were many distinctive qualities about Jewish commerce um, that run along many different axes, and I'll try to distill just one or two that Mm -hmm. might be of greatest interest. First, and um, most notably, and probably most familiarly for the majority of your listeners, would be the fact of restrictions, that Jews um, had a long tradition of being restricted in some degree from certain positions in the Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire, which preceded the Christian Roman Empire, which we also call the Byzantine Empire. Mm. So the Jews were limited. Uh, They couldn't necessarily join the guilds, which were the uh, professional organizations that both protected and promoted professions. and they were restricted from the military, which, of course, is a, a major economic engine in all pre-modern societies, mm. as indeed in modern societies as well. Mm. So that's one sort of obvious contour 
to the Jewish economy being in any way specifically Jewish. Mm. The other uh, major, major contour to uh, Jewish, um, anything Jewish that we would call commercial or economic is the internal workings of a of a, of, of a semi-autonomous community such as the Jews were. They had all kinds of things that they needed to trade, buy, sell, that were distinctively Jewish in and of themselves, so that the economy that builds up around the commerce around these things is also intrinsically Jewish. First and foremost among these things would probably be um, kosher meat, meat slaughtered according to the traditional rules of Jewish law so that it's um, edible for mm-hmm. by Jews. Uh, most most people have heard the term kosher. That's what that refers to. It is suitable for consumption by Jews. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it deals with many categories of food, but primarily uh, um, with meats because they have to be slaughtered a certain way mm-hmm. as with um, halal, which some people may recognize in terms of um, uh, requirements for Muslims to eat certain types of meat. Uh, the other major category of item that was intrinsically Jewish and therefore necessarily uh, economically Jewish is anything written. Uh, Jews had a, a book culture or a scroll culture, depending on what they were carrying with them, um, going back uh, into antiquity. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the costs of publication were very high. And the, the, the economic implications of importing, exporting, producing um, books was, um, was really central to, to Jewish life. Uh, additionally, in that same category of Jewish things, any kind of Jewish architecture, a synagogue, for example, or a ritual bath, or a, uh, a Jewish um, academy, all of these things uh, imply uh, Jewish commerce. However, some of them more than others also imply uh, commerce with non-Jews, because part of the story also has to do with the way commerce did not merely um, ping-pong internally among Jewish communities, but also connected Jewish communities mm-hmm. to non-Jewish communities. In the Byzantine Empire, mm-hmm. probably the most um, work that the Jews did that um, embedded them in the broader economy of the Byzantine Empire would be textiles and leathers. Mm. The Jews um, both traded and produced both of these products in the Byzantine Empire, which were uh, very important for the economy. The best way to understand textiles and leathers today is to think of them as uh, durable items. You know, some of sometimes if you're listening to the radio, you'll hear economists talking about uh, durable items, items like refrigerators, cars, things that are expected to last for a long time. Mm-hmm. Whereas today we buy our clothes off the rack and they may last a very short time. We may expect them to last a very short time. In the pre-modern world, mm-hmm. uh, clothes were built to last, <laughs> so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. um, and they held their value. And so uh, that's why even in our day, we know of our grandparents having had hand-me-downs that are really you know, family heirlooms, because clothes held that role mm. uh, in a way that they just don't so much these days. And Jews were uh, very active in that sector of the economy. 
Do you have uh, reason to believe that they were more active with textiles than uh, the non-Jewish population? No, only because um, they the Jews were so dwarfed mm. by the larger uh, numbers of people and because textiles are so essential in every society. What we do know is that Jews were disproportionately in, invested in it, so that, that it, was, it was highly likely that, a, that Jewish, Jewish um, uh, traders and, um, and, and travelers and investors, they, a larger portion of Jews were invested in that than the proportion of non-Jews who were invested in it. Mm -hmm. So there's a disproportion on that side of things. And to be sure, I have no doubt that that there are indications that the Jews were also, you know, disproportionately um, present, even in the broader market. That is to say, if they're a population of less than one percent, they probably um, uh, traded larger than one percent of all textiles in the Byzantine Empire. Mm. But but they but. It's not like we're talking about fifty percent or thirty percent or even twenty or ten. We're yeah. just talking about the fact that the community had expertise, connections, traditions, uh, you know, capacity to serve this need, um, which which embedded them in the broader economy. Uh, you mentioned um, a few different items of trade, um, slaughtered meat, you mentioned, um, which they would work towards being kosher as an example. You mentioned literature, uh, textiles, and um, leather. Um, so was there a um, was there a desire then for some items, it sounds like, um, to really be manufactured and distributed out of necessity to other Jewish people? Is that Correct when you mention things like the the creation of of meat in a certain particular um, way, right. so that comes from like a it's a it's a necessity at that at at that point to manufacture it that way. Yeah, correct. They would the the um, in these these internal Jewish demands were specific to the Jewish community, and so the supply to meet those demands was was um, often also. Jewish. So you would expect mm -hmm. any significant population of Jews to have a Jewish butcher that could provide kosher food. So too, all of these writings were in Hebrew. Uh, and so mm -hmm. you needed skilled scholars. Scholarship itself is an economic engine in the Jewish community. It's just of the category of economy that um, that was segregated from the broader economy in contrast to textiles and uh, tanning leathers, which was a sector of the economy which actually bridged the relationship mm -hmm. between the Jews and the non-Jews. Yeah, because in, in some instances, the the kosher meets, the, the, the literature, if it's in Hebrew, um, the, the target client base would be other Jewish people. Correct. Um, and then other things like the the textiles. So when it so when it came to items that weren't necessarily specific to Jewish people, like textiles and leathers, what did you observe in in that case in terms of the the, the customer base? The textile and leather um, market was understood to be a universal market, not at all Jewish, except insofar as the Jews had expertise and um, connections, as any business network has 
to produce them efficiently mm. and to to um, to be able to source their their materials, etc. There was this goes way back uh, and way forward, by the way. The the Jewish um, investment communally in the textile industry writ large is a very very long standing tradition, and it's not just Byzantine. But it does go back to the Byzantine uh, Empire. Uh, this commitment, this economic expertise and commitment in the fabrication and uh, distribution and sale of textiles mm -hmm. goes way back. Even in Byzantium, it goes back uh, to uh, the emperor Constantius in the fourth century when imperial weavers, because remember, Textiles are very valuable, and they and 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 the the emperor's treasury often had uh, textiles that were ceremonial, made out of gold thread, for example, mm -hmm. and, and expensive silks and dyes. And so there was an imperial uh, uh, weavery <laughs> because this was such an important part of of, of the imperial treasury, you know, their 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 wealth. And in uh, in the fourth century, it turns out that uh, that women in the weaving factories of the imperial court um, married Jews and then converted to Jews, mm. uh, to being Jewish. And so uh, there there was a connection there as well. Mm. And it, uh, it caused some consternation from the emperor at the time. Mm. The stakes were very high. And the, the it goes forward in time as well, uh, Jewish weaving and textile distribution to the non-Jewish economy. Okay. And uh, when it comes to demarcation, Joshua, and obviously it varies over time, the, the Byzantine Empire, when, when someone's normally talking about the, the Byzantine Empire, what, what regions are they, are they speaking about? We're talking about... Um, Roughly. You don't the have to, area, yeah. yeah, the area, uh, I mean, with some consistency, we're talking about the area that includes... Um, modern-day Greece and Turkey to the north. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, Syria-Palestine, the com combined region that archaeologists refer to as Syria-Palestine in uh, the east, and then circling around the Mediterranean, including um, Egypt and North Africa, or maybe the eastern half of North Africa, depending on when you're talking about, uh, to the south. So it's largely understood to be the Eastern Roman Empire or the mm -hmm. Christian Roman Empire, and it, it tends to be uh, generally associated with the Eastern half of the Mediterranean. Okay, yeah, and so it's a fairly vast amount of land, and so in this conversation, we're not only speaking about Constantinople, the city of Constantinople. Correct. So did in your research, did you find that there were some... Um, differences in interests in trade, depending on where Jewish people lived in the empire. Yeah, there are really two foci that define Jewish um, population in the Byzantine world. Mm -hmm. Number one, there is uh, there's a constant connection to the land of Israel, uh, and sometimes there are populations there. Sometimes there's movement back and forth from there, um, but but there is a. There is an element of uh, the land of Israel always being um, part of the sort of the, the 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 north star for the Jewish 
consciousness, even if they don't live there. And then, of course, there are those who live there. Mm -hmm. That's one dynamic. But probably statistically more significant among the, the Jews of the Byzantine Empire would be the tendency to be coastal. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they needed access to the sea for the trade, specifically, again, in the textiles of which we spoke, uh, both to promote the various stages of production. You might be able to get flax from one port and cotton from another, um, and then to go to another place to apply the dyes, maybe in Syria. Mm. Um, and uh, you may want to distribute in uh, Constantinople or uh, any of the other metropolis of the of the Byzantine Empire. So that's the other major major element here, which is the coastal tendency of Jewish populations mm -hmm. to reside. To what degree did you observe exporting, so exporting outside of Byzantium? I think when it comes to Jewish books and that aspect of the Jewish economy, as well as textiles, if I'm not mistaken, I think mm -hmm. we're dealing mostly with either importation or home production. Um, the I, I don't... Uh, as I'm thinking out loud, I don't think of exports so much in the case of the Byzantine Jews. I think of exports okay. more in the case of the Jews of Egypt, mm. which which ceased to be Byzantine by, um, you know, certainly by the 10th century. Okay. So for the most part, from what you've observed, it was more domesticated, domestic trade. Uh, yeah, or importation. Um, ah. of, raw, of yeah. raw materials, yeah. things like that. Um, there, there was fear of Jewish export of silk because silk was a precious commodity, again, along the lines of that unique power and, and value of textiles that we don't um, intuitively think of today. Um, there, but there were there certainly were exports, and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking of them now again. Uh, uh, and silks, of course, were what the Byzantine Empire was, was most um, protective of. They didn't want to export silks. Um, can you clarify but, why that is? Sorry? Can you clarify why there was a, uh, a, a reluctance to export uh, silk? Yeah, silk was a secret for a long time, mm -hmm. a, a far eastern secret. And the Byzantines... Uh, cracked the code and they figured out what silk was huh. um, during the reign of Justinian, I think. Huh. Um, they they realized that silk was a product of um, of silkworms who have to live specifically on the mulberry tree. And uh, and so that, that was basically a trade secret and hmm. silk was extremely valuable. It didn't remain a monopoly of the Byzantines forever by any means, but... Um, it was a precious commodity in an economic universe that, mm -hmm. unlike today, preferred to hold on to its sources of wealth rather than export them. Today, we think of exportation as a positive thing. You have your, your product and you sell it for uh, cash. And the wealth is really in cash because today cash is seen as you know, the, the, the most um, uh, flexible mm -hmm kind of wealth and, and everybody wants it. Back then, um, 
money and coins were really understood to be representations of the thing that was really your wealth, sort of like the gold standard that we used to have. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had the thing itself, you didn't want the coins, you wanted the thing, unless mm -hmm. the coins weren't gold. So, so uh, exporting silk was seen as um, basically a, a, a flight of your wealth and that they wanted to discourage it and or control it very much. And they basically excluded the Jews from doing that, although I'm sure the Jews did it if and when they could. To what degree were seas used by Jewish people in this period of time in the Byzantine Empire for trade? Um, as as um, their, their coastal uh, habitation indicates, the sea was everything. In fact, mm. I had a professor of archaeology who who pointed out that the Mediterranean isn't so great for fishing. It doesn't afford you um, necessarily other kinds of wealth or food. Uh, um, there are fish, of course, but uh, that fundamentally the, 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 the power of the Mediterranean was its, um, its uh, transitability, that you could cross it uh, relatively efficiently. Mm -hmm. And so Jews were not... Uh, prominent as ship owners or ship builders at all. Hmm. Um, but they were prominent clients of shippers and uh, relied entirely on the ability to, uh, to move goods across the Mediterranean in all directions, even beyond the Mediterranean, and I'm um, sorry, even beyond the Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Jews were able to function internationally uh, within a shared legal context. So if a Muslim from Alexandria um, was working with a Christian from Byzantium, you know, they had to negotiate uh, their terms in ways that were, you know, required a, a relationship mm -hmm. and mutual understanding and, and, and uh, crossing legal regimes. Uh, if Jews traded with Jews, they could, to a higher degree, share um, the standards of Jewish law and Jewish trade law uh, that would provide them with a sense of security. Mm -hmm. So if I deposit my textiles in your warehouse, uh, you and I know about the shared rules for liability should your warehouse um, burst into flames and burn all of our goods. Mm -hmm. Who, how do you share the loss? Uh, who's deemed primarily responsible who do you go to for recourse? You know, there are, there are things that are built into Jewish law, which are not religious per se, but indeed social and economic mm -hmm. and civic. And fellow Jews could rely on that. And, and that promoted an ease of business. Mm. And, th and that business crisscrossed the Mediterranean. And so the seas were the way to do it, to get there. You would hire a ship and you would you know, land and you would have um, people to work with where you landed. That's fascinating. What are the canonical documents that pre like prescribe these, these laws and customs for Jewish people doing business with other Jewish people? There's sort of two layers. The foundational layer is called Talmud, um, which was, it's, it's, it's a code. Uh, it's not really a code. It's a, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation about Jewish law that tries to distill um, which uh, 
opinions, which legal opinions mm-hmm. um, are deemed uh, um, um, binding law for Jews around the world. They range from mm-hmm. you know, family law, marriage law, um, agricultural law, to torts uh, and civic-minded uh, law and commercial law and mm-hmm. uh, any, any number of categories because it comes, the Talmud itself um, was committed to writing over the course of the fifth century, two versions, one mm-hmm. in Babylonia or Baghdad, wasn't Baghdad yet, uh, and the other in the land of Israel. Okay. And these two Talmuds, they're sort of parallel. Yeah. They, t- they, um, um, what, what's the word? Um, they compile these conversations, mm-hmm. these legal conversations among rabbis who are effectively functioning as judges. Mm. And at all, and, but even though it was compiled, the, the, the Jerusalem Talmud was compiled, um, you know, roughly in the early 5th century and the Babylonian Talmud roughly at the early 6th century, even though they were compiled, they represent centuries of judicial conversations mm-hmm. going back half a millennium. So they, that is the canonical foundation for Jewish law to which I referred earlier in terms of commercial exchange. However... In the Middle Ages, um, conditions changed, life goes on, and a book of law needs interpretation, just like the Constitution in the United States needs interpretation. You have to have judges to apply written laws mm-hmm. to highly changeable realities and impossible varieties of cases and human condition. And so the Jews developed a um, an, uh, an un systematic but highly uh, what's the word it's not that it's unsystematic um, they, they developed a highly flexible mm. system of applying Jewish law to the impossible infinity of mm. cases called responsa responsa is the Latin plural of the singular responsum which is as it sounds a response meaning a letter in response so this was an epistolary genre of Mm -hmm. judicial deciding. And it worked this way. You had a problem. Uh, Joe and Sam uh, have a boundary dispute on a hillside, which is extremely complicated because of the hillside Mm -hmm. and because Mm -hmm. of the crops that cross over and et cetera. And the local rabbi can't resolve the problem because it's really the, 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 the judicial problems and the practical problems are just beyond this rabbi's capacity to really fairly mm-hmm. adjudicate. Mm-hmm. So this rabbi sends a letter to the great rabbi off in Baghdad or the great rabbi in Tiberias or the great rabbi in Constantinople or Italy. Mm-hmm. And there are these you know, leading rabbis all over the place. But you, you would aim for the, the most prestigious rabbi you could, you could get to read this. And the rabbi would read the case um, as laid out in the letter and would offer a response. And I would say, if this is the case, if all of these facts are true, then on the basis of this legal principle, um, which is the most uh, germane legal principle, mm-hmm. we're going to decide in favor of Joe. 
and they would give their reasoning and Joe would win the case because beforehand Joe and Sam would agree that they would, like an arbitration, they would agree to abide by the ruling of the distant prestigious rabbi. Mm. Well, these are very, very useful letters because they help you deal with all of the ramified possibilities of life Mm. as presented to a Jewish court. And so because they were so useful, they tended to be compiled. The rabbis would keep copies of their letters and the, and the, and the compendia of these letters called responsa would in and, in and of themselves become legal resources. And you would look for a case that was mm-hmm. uh, comparable to yours that could establish a precedent on which you could rely. And so the Talmud is this static body of literature, which was you know, fully committed to writing in the 5th and 6th centuries. And that was the basis. From those rules, you have this dynamic body of literature, which is always growing. To this day, it's still growing. Mm. And it would provide um, guidance on, on difficult cases. Uh, and those are the two main sources of Jewish law, both religious law, family law, but also economic law. Something about something that's interesting in what you're sharing Joshua is uh, the, the, the concept of uh, the Jewish community self-governing themselves judicially. I'm not familiar with religions uh, in contemporary uh, times um, self-governing themselves judicially in in that way in um, countries that I'm familiar with. Um, and I could be I could be inaccurate uh, there, uh, but I'm not familiar with with that. In the Byzantine Empire. Were there other religions that could self-govern themselves judicially in this kind of way? Yeah, the 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 the, the, the genre of responsa is not uniquely Jewish. Christians had them as well. Hmm. I'm not sure about Muslims, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the 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 capacity of a religious minority to exert some kind of um, autonomy in internal matters is not unique to is not unique to the Jews. It, it was actually um, something that other religious communities could do as well, depending on the situation hmm. and depending on the, the the conditions under which they lived in the majority culture and with a majority government. In fact, what happens is a negotiation whereby you have. Um, uh, some kind of agreement about what law the Jews will be allowed to govern themselves and what law the Jews would be required to submit to the judicial and political authority of the governing um, population and Mm -hmm. and government. So it's not straight up independence. It's a kind of negotiated autonomy. Mm. The difference between the Jews and the other populations is that the Jews had developed their legal tradition as a minority among majorities in diaspora. Most religious communities did not do that. Most religious communities developed their own religious and legal um, structures, expectations, Mm. norms, in the context of being sovereign majorities in their location. Mm. And while they may have had to negotiate, you know, small populations on the outside or, or what have you, fundamentally the orientation of those populations themselves did not presuppose being a minority in a diaspora community. The Jews, by contrast, developed the Talmud already 
in a situation where they were a, a, a disenfranchised or partially disenfranchised minority mm. in diaspora. Even the Jews in, in the land of Israel who wrote the, 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 the land of Israel Talmud, mm-hmm. they were still, although they were geographically not in diaspora, politically they were because they were not writing from a position of sovereignty. They were writing from a position of political um, subjugation, in this case, to the Byzantine Empire. So, so the, what that means is that Jewish law evolved in a way that was very well suited to exercising autonomy, both because the Jewish culture and Jewish religion were so different from Islam and so different from Christianity, mm-hmm. but also because they, they knew how to function in this diasporic reality. And, and, and their laws were built on that assumption, uh, largely. Indeed, the whole idea of responsive presupposes that you're going to have to function in that way. Mm. So that's what distinguishes the Jewish um, degree of autonomy and, um, you know, the, their, their ability to navigate uh, the realities of, of, other, of other judicial systems. There were cases, there were plenty of cases, though, where Jews themselves might prefer the non-Jewish court, mm-hmm. and they would they would uh, sort of go out of the community, but that was highly contentious. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, there are cases, often criminal cases, where the government itself would say, you know, you can you can make your own rules about kosher meat, and, and if you guys have an economic dispute between two Jews, and you both Jews prefer to go mm-hmm. to a Jewish court, great, knock yourself out. But if a Jew breaks a Christian law, or if a Jew um, does harm to a, a Christian, then uh, you know, we're going to we're going to impose our sovereignty. Mm. And in fact, in the United States today, that's still true. Uh, I suspect in most Western democracies, it's actually still the case. If if you have two um, merchants who agree to Jewish law arbitration, mm. just like two non-Jews could agree to arbitration, um, you just have to agree on the judge. And if it's a rabbinic judge whom you both agree to you know, by contract beforehand, then, you know, you can you can function in that world um, as Muslim law can in the United States as well. If both parties had, you know, appropriately agreed beforehand that they would um, they would submit to some kind of Muslim ruling. Mm. So it's not um, altogether unheard of even today, although it's rare. Mm. Um Based on your research, um, h- how do you think they did economically? Um, I think they held their own. I think um, uh, it's it's uh, it's very difficult to talk. I mean, the wealth they were not in, in Byzantium, as far as we know, mm-hmm. uh, and they were not the power brokers at all. They were not the wealthy minority. You know, there are there are cases where we know of minority populations being the elite, uh, sometimes in very negative ways, sometimes in positive ways. You know, the Zoroastrians in India, for example, are a you know a minority elite. They do very well and they and they they, they can use their minorityhood in ways that are very beneficial and positive uh, for their own economic status, in addition to their civic contribution to India. And there are times when the Jews were able to do Similar things uh, sometimes in um, in Egypt, for example, in Cairo, where they could be, you know, appreciably successful and, and be able to really be economic players. As far as we know, in Byzantium, this was not the case. As far mm. as we know, there was a communal sustainability, but there was not um, some kind of um, juggernaut 
uh, wealth machine that, uh, that positioned the Jews extraordinarily well. Uh, they, they had uh, the tanning, for example, the leathers of which we spoke. Mm. was very hard, very dirty, uh, 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 complicated work that wasn't attractive. And you know, it didn't, um, you know, but it, it, it was necessary and therefore had a market. And the Jews were able to, to function well within it. Is there any uh, last um, item or items that is very um, uh, important to this, uh, you know, instrumental to this conversation that you feel we didn't touch on? I would close by pointing out how Greek the Jews were. Um, the, the Jewish story with the Hellenic universe mm-hmm. goes way back to Alexander the Great, you know, uh, in, in the... In the fourth uh, century BCE and his conquest of the Near East. And indeed, the Jews, like the other Near Eastern cultures in the land of Israel, but also around, were very um, influenced by Greek culture and they engaged with it very deeply. And the, the, the Greek language was uh, very, very much a part of being a Byzantine Jew, as opposed to some other populations where where maybe they um, they preserved a traditional language that wasn't the majority language. So this this very very long history of being Greek and Jewish, I think, uh, shaped the the Byzantine Jewish experience and as well as the economic experience of being Byzantine and Jewish. Mm. This has been a fascinating dialogue. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Joshua. Andrew, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Hola wrote, Byzantine Jewelry in the Mediterranean Economy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Joshua and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.